This is Critical Karaoke. I'm novelist and music writer Steve Hayward. I'm Ryan Benigali, professor of musicology. I'm Idris Goodwin, playwright and hip-hop professor. On Critical Karaoke, we take a handful of songs and we talk our way through them. It's history and analysis. Questions and answers. Observations and insights. All inspired by the music that we listen to. As we listen to it. It's like karaoke, but without the singing. The topic of this episode is movies. Come on, Annie. Let's go to the movies. Let's go see the stars. <laughs> But that's all in the movies. It won't. And she's hooked to the silver screen. But the film is a sad thing for. The grandest thing I've ever seen are pictures on a movie screen. Wolfman Europe. But first, it's band name pop quiz. This band name pop quiz is going to be about bands who are in movies. Fictional bands, in other words, from fictional worlds. Okay. Some of these are going to be movies, some of these are going to be television shows. And the way it's going to work is I'm going to give you the name of a band, and you're going to tell me the fictional world from which it comes, all right? Okay. All right. First band, Timmy and the Lords of the Underworld. Is this a TV show or movie? This is a TV show. TV show, TV show. Uh... I'm not sure. Mm, gonna pass. Don't know. Ryan? It sounds like something out of like a zombie show, like Walking Dead or, or some, something like that. It's Can't... actually not The Walking okay. Dead. I'm going to give you a hint. This is a television show with a connection to the state of Colorado. State Timmy of Col- and the Lords of the Underworld. Oh, South Park. South Park is exactly right. Mm-hmm. It's a band consisting of Skylar Jonesy, Mark later joined by Timmy. The band Timmy. Uh, is right. Ben's frontman Skyler uh, breaks up uh, in part at the uh, La 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 Festival, which is like, uh, that's how they say it. It's difficult to pronounce. Uh, after Skyler is encouraged by Phil Collins to start a solo project called Reach for the Skyler. So, that sounds right. like something Phil Collins would do. <laughs> Number two, first going to Idris and then Ryan with a chance to steal. Name of the band, Autobahn. Autobahn. Oh, this is uh, Big Lebowski. Big Lebowski is exactly right, nice. Idris. Well done. Uh, members are Yuli Kunkel, uh, Torsten Vorges, and of course, Flea from the Red Heart Chili Peppers. This is, this is the nihilist band. Yeah. That's right. They believe in nothing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> as, as give the us dude, the money, Lebowski. <laughs> give us the Where's the money, Lebowski? <laughs> the quote is Donnie, these men are nihilists. There's nothing to be afraid of. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps the most reassuring, unreassuring, reassuring line in yeah. all film. One last one, uh, Sonic Death Monkey. Ooh, that's a rough one. Is that movie or f- from mo- film? Yeah, film. And I'm gonna. It's also there are two other names associated with this particular band: Sonic Death Monkey, Kathleen Turner Overdrive, Barry Jive, and the Uptown Funk. Rob, thank you for the enthusiastic intro, but we're no longer called Sonic Death Monkey. Uh, We're on the verge of being called uh, Kathleen Turner Overdrive. However, this evening we will be Barry Jive and the Uptown Five.
Oh, yeah, don't know that one. Ryan? This all comes from High Fidelity. Yes, right, Nick Hornby's High Fidelity. And who's the lead singer, Ryan? The lead singer is Jack Black. Jack Black is exactly right. Takes a lot of, well, can we say cojones to cover the song that he covers. Do you recall what it is? I believe that he sings Let's Get It On. Let's get it on by the immortal Marvin Gaye. Also ranking in my my own book as being a song that if I was would I cover it, would I ever attempt it? I would not. No? No. For money though, would you do it for money? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's get into the show a little oh, actually, bit. Oh, actually, hey guys, uh, real quick, sorry to interrupt you, but for the first time ever, I have a band name pop quiz question to contribute. So you're gonna you've Got a band name pop quiz. Yes, and I have I have a I have a name of a fictional band from a film. The band is Sexual Chocolate. Sexual Chocolate. It's sexual Chocolate. That sounds a little bit like a Marvin Gaye song. When I get the feeling I want Sexual, sexual Chocolate. chocolate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, can, you give, can you give us a hint? The, so it's one of these films where the the lead actor plays multiple supporting characters as well, right? Uh, so he's the main character, but he also shows up as different people in, in costume, right? Through the magic so, of film. Through the magic of uh, of, a, of a, one of the great makeup artists in Hollywood. And so this lead actor plays the lead singer of Sexual Chocolate while he's actually in the audience playing a diff- an entirely different character. Is this, a, is this a Tyler Perry movie? No, no, no. This is uh, earlier earlier than that. Hallelujah. Thank God. Because my guess was going to be Tyler Perry as well. Immediately uh, when you gave me that hint, that's what... I'm thinking there's a film that Eddie Murphy's in that um, he plays lots of parts in, and I can't place the film, and I don't know if it, I can't remember the singer in it. But it is... What was that? Coming to America. Coming, the great Coming, Coming to, to America. America. Yeah. And what is the song that they sexual... They sing uh, uh, The Greatest Love, that, that when he, you know, the I believe the children are... It's great. It's one of the great scenes in that movie. <laughs> in any movie. While you're in the clapping mood, I'd like to give a big round of applause to my band, Sexual Chocolate. <laughs> Sexual chocolate. They play so fine, don't you agree? I believe the children are our future. Thank you. Teach them well and let them lead the way. Show them all the beauty they possess inside. Give them a sense of pride. Okay, well, I've got one for you guys, and I think this is timely in a sense because it's uh, a band name pop quiz that has to do with a film that was released 30 years ago in the 80s, uh, in the summer of 1985. Oh, you don't even have to ask the question. The answer is Simple Minds, Don't You Forget About Me, from The Breakfast Club. No, that film came out in February 1985. The film I'm asking about is from the summer. Uh, from the summer. The answer is Oingo Boingo. Oingo Boingo? You know, yeah. From my heart and from my hand, why don't people understand my intention? 
frontman Danny Elfman, who go on to be go on to compose the Simpsons theme song and the, the the music from the Tim Burton film. He's Oingo Boingo, and it's him who writes and records Weird Science, John Hughes' film starring Anthony Michael Hall, but a very hot robot. What would you little maniacs like to do first? No, no, it's not. It's not Oingo Boingo. Uh, Danny Elfman also wrote uh, the music for Pee Wee's Big Adventure, which came out right after, like a week after Weird Science. You guys know a remarkable amount about the 1985. No, can I ask my question? I bet. I don't. The Goonies. Is the answer the Goonies? Because if it's the Goonies, the answer is Cindy Lauper. No, 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 no. He's talking about National Lampoon's European Vacation, and the answer is Lindsey Buckingham. No. Can I please ask my question? Teen Teen Wolf. Wolf. He's a wolf in teen's clothing. And tonight is his night to howl. Teen Wolf. A new comedy with Michael J. Fox, star of Back to the Future. Actually, Teen Wolf's kind of close. I'm thinking of another film released that summer starring the same actor, Michael J. Fox. Back to, Back the, to future. the Future. Back to the Future. Yes, okay. And so my question is, what is the name of Marty McFly's band? Uh, you know, the one that... that when he played, plays in Back to the He plays in Back to the Future. He, they're trying out for the, the Hill Valley High School Battle of the Bands. Oh, yeah. It was um, the Hill Valley Valentines. No. DeLoreans? The DeLoreans? Nope. Give us a hint. Why don't we just play the clip? All right. We're the, uh, we're the pinheads. One, two, three. The pinheads? Yeah, the pinheads. So, you know, pinheads is kind of a pejorative term for someone. Um, it refers to a person with uh, microcephaly. And it's that's the condition where your brain is actually about two inches smaller than the normal size brain. It's uh, you know small, like the head of a pin. Yeah. So it goes inside. It goes along with this kind of slacker rocker image in the 1980s, and that's the the, the kind of the image that Marty McFly is trying to go with with his band, the Pinheads. Because he likes to shred. He's like, I, I don't have time for your 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 you know your norms and your you know what I mean. Like I'm out of control. Yeah. And yeah. this is at the very beginning of the movie. At the very beginning of the movie, he's playing the judging panel. Huey Lewis is one of the judges. Right? Yeah, Huey Lewis, and it's a Huey Lewis in the news tune that the band starts playing. The right? Power They're, of Love. The Power of Love, and they actually don't even get to singing the part with the lyrics for Power of Love because Huey Lewis, with his megaphone, stands up and he cuts them off. Right? Because mm-hmm. Marty starts shredding a little bit. He starts shredding too much, and yeah, and, and Huey Lewis stands up with his microphone and his you know three-piece suit and says, "I'm afraid you're just too darn loud." Next place. Awesome. It's, it, it reminds me of what 1985 was like. That was a time which, you know, in those days, if you played guitar, one of the things you you did, one of the things that was a standard part of your repertoire was some kind of complicated hammer-on Eddie Van Halen eruptive solo. Yeah, and, with all the with all the finger smooths and slides mm-hmm. and taps and whammy bars and yeah, whammy bars and feedback. pick slides yeah, and, yeah. and you know sometimes you do it over your neck. Uh, you know, but then only if you really felt it. Only if you were Stephen Hayward. Hi oh. Hi You know, the, the moment has gone. Like that's moment. Talk about Back to the Future. Uh, that is a moment that has gone. You don't go. When was the last time you went to a show? In the middle of it, there was some kind of, uh, yeah. you know, epic. I don't, I don't think that's happening at band at the Band of Horses concert. <laughs> that's right.
You know, this was the days of, uh, of you know, Eddie Van Halen, right? It's gone. This yeah. is, we don't think about virtuosity in music in the same way, I don't think. We don't, yeah. And I mean, I think, I'm thinking, like, in the ways that virtuosity works its way into music today, and it's not so much in the guitar and instrumental realm, but I think it's actually tied more to the vocal realm. What do you mean? There's a lot of emphasis placed on the rhythmic virtuosity of, of lyric delivery, particularly, you know, in hip hop over the last 10, 15 years is this amount of, you know, the faster you can do it, the more syncopation you can add, the, the, the more kind of complex or elided the rhyme scheme might be. There's kind of this rhythmic virtuosity that mm. happens through vocal delivery. But then also I think there's another type of vocal delivery as well that's really prized here, which is that thing that comes out of American Idol, right? Oh yeah, like yeah, all those shows, the people who win are the biggest belters, really. Like there's no there's no Billy Holiday smoky voiced, you know what I mean? People winning these shows. It's like the the Aguilera the children of Aguilera usually walk off with the prize because they can take it to the seat. You know, it's that arena. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to hit the, the rafters with the power of my voice. Yeah, so and yeah, so and with built. the hip hop, too, like Kendrick Lamar is like the, you know, is the biggest rapper right now who has like got the most sort of complicated, complex, you know, highly syncopated, very fast kind of rapping style that everybody, that all the kids love. Right, and that's and that's kind of where where I think that virtuosity that 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 we had out of the guitar hero era of the '80s is is kind of moved into yeah, into into the verbal realm into the vocal realm yeah vocal and mm-hmm. verbal it's just, I'm often praised for or not praised exactly but the speed of my discourse is often commented upon uh, and not always in a positive way if you talk very quickly people would say I didn't understand a single word you said and uh, <laughs> and I take that I take that as a compliment. As a, as a sort of acknowledgement of my virtuosity, it's not always meant that way. But it also... <laughs> You're misunderstood, man. <laughs> so, like so misunderstood. Many you, you like just so many don't understand One day, my virtuosity. It's just, just waiting for history to come back. Speaking of history to come back, Huey Lewis. Can you still listen to Huey Lewis in the news? Can I mean, you, listen to you remember Lewis when that came out in 1985? Bump. 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 You know, I mean, I just, I can listen to that song. You feel the the tears running down your face. Yeah, <laughs> You're Lewis. crying right now. How could Huey Lewis have made something so beautiful? And it's like, you know, he, he's an artist a little bit like Howard Jones, someone who you love intensely for a period of 18 months. And uh, then can you go back to Huey Lewis? Can you go back to those songs from the from the 80s? Well, I think the smartest thing that Huey Lewis, I mean, those those songs in particular, you know, the, sm- the smartest thing he did was associate them with the film Back to the Future. Like, that's what's going to... Because that's what the song makes you think of. It makes you think of... It doesn't make you think of how much you love Huey Lewis or how much you love his whole catalog. I mean, unless you're a huge Huey Lewis fan. I celebrate the guy's entire catalog. Anyway, let's get down to business, Michael. But I hear that song and I only think of the movie and how much I love the movie and how much I remember loving the movie when I was a kid in 1985, going to see that movie with my cousins, the weekend it opened. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, and that's, that's, that's totally the power of songs in film, right? Is that they, they get imprinted by the message and the meaning and whatever's happening in the particular scene or scenes in which they appear in the film and on the soundtrack. And then beyond that, like Idris is saying, it becomes connected to who you are, where you are at that moment in time when you see that film. And that becomes kind of stamped on your memory as well. So we have this kind of series of kind of semantic chaining that when we so hear sem- a song... Yeah. So semantic chaining, the idea that it's... Things are linked because they're in the same kind of sentence type of formation. And here, the way that things are linked, it's because they exist culturally at the same historical moment. Right, Is that exactly. What you mean? Yeah, exactly. And that, and that, then in some ways, certain songs can't be separated. They can't be pried from their shell, right, and, and removed from, from the filmic world in which they become locked. 
So that's what our subject of this episode of Critical Karaoke is. It's those songs that are become associated with a filmic text, with a film, where it's it's wedded to that film in such a way that we forget its origins. We forget, or we don't think, maybe not forget entirely, but we don't think first of the original moment when it's Right, produced. the cultural moment from which it may have emerged. It gets transformed when it becomes seen on the screen. Okay, I'll go first. Then. Okay. All right. The song I want at Critical Karaoke is a song by a band called Steeler's Wheel. I want to confess that even though I know something about Steelers Wheel now, even though I know that they're from Scotland, they were uh, the, the members of it are Joe Egan and then Jerry Rafferty. Uh, even though I know that now, at the time, I was not aware of this song at all. I'd never heard this song until I went to see the film Reservoir Dogs. That was the Partridge family's Doesn't Somebody Want to Be Wanted? Followed by Edison Lighthouse's Love Grows Where My Rosemary Goes. As Kay Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s Weekend Just Keeps On Trucking. Reservoir Dogs is a film that makes us wonder, what kind of film is this anyway? Not just what's going to happen next, but what kind of film is this anyway? And for me, that moment in Reservoir Dogs is a, it occurs when we hear Steeler's Wheel. Now, do you remember that moment? What happens? I do, yeah. So the song comes on in the scene of the film. So the basic plot premise, and we should probably preface the whole episode uh, by saying that you know, there's going to be some spoilers. Yeah, you haven't spoiler seen these films. Alert. You might want to watch them before we talk about them. Cause spoiler, Turn off the radio right now. Yeah, come back it. to it. Okay, so now that you've seen Reservoir Dogs, you know that in this point in the movie, the, there's, there's a you know, series of, 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 what we call them, series of bad guys, right? It's the brown. It's the white. They're, 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 it's a heist movie, It's a heist right? movie, right. So we've got all the members of this gang that, are, that participate in a heist, and the heist has gone wrong, and they've retired to this kind of warehouse where they're trying to collect it themselves and get things back together. We're in this part in, this, in the film where we have... A cop. They've they've taken a cop hostage, and one of the one of the uh, gang members has has decided he's going to take it upon himself to torture the cop, either to get information or just to torture him. It's amusing to me to torture a cop. You can say anything you want because I've heard it all before. All you can do is pray for a quick death, which you ain't gonna get. You have the feeling from the very beginning of the movie that he's not the most stable character. There's something a little bit off about him. And he goes over to the radio. You ever listen to Kay Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s? What comes on then is the voice of a DJ. The voice of the DJ has run through the movie. It's the voice, the unmistakable voice of Stephen Wright, who is a comic, very big in the 80s, very funny in the 80s, very deadpan, like maybe very the dry. most deadpan of deadpan yeah. comics. And he introduces the song in this 
unbelievably laconic way. Joey and Jerry Rafferty were a duo known as Steeler's Wheel when they recorded this Dylan-esque pop bubblegum favorite from April of 1974. That reached up to number five as K-Billy Super Sounds of the 70s continued. What happens is he turns on the radio, get the, turns up the volume, backs away from the radio, and begins to dance. Mm-hmm. He begins to dance with a straight razor in his hand. He takes a straight razor out of his boot and dances forward, dances back. And I believe it's at that moment that the viewer says to themselves, and maybe even out loud, uh-oh. Uh-oh, yeah, there's, there's really something really not right here. The, there's something about the Steelers' Wheel song that pulls you into it. You're immediately bopping to it, just as this guy with the swishblade in his hand is bopping to it. You're singing along to it, just as this, this guy is singing along to it, and something sinister is about to happen. The way that it works filmically is that it makes you complicit in whatever act of violence is about to happen. Yeah, and there's this really interesting kind of sonic moment that happens in that transfer between turning the radio on and him kind of starting to dance with the knife is that we actually move from the sound of, of Steeler's Wheel coming out of a small single speaker in the radio on the side of the warehouse to it becoming part of the full soundtrack surrounding us. So in a sense, that sound envelops us and also contributes to that complacency. Yeah, it's a very, it's an amazing moment. One of the things that when you teach film, when you talk about film, is the music diegetic? Is it is it in the world of the film or is it extra diegetic in that it exists as a kind of in the way that a narrative voiceover or like the sort of spooky music. The example that you give is you, you something spooky is going to happen in the basement of a house you're going down. You hear this, you know, you know, ominous sounding cello. Yeah. And then if you were to reach the bottom of the stairs in the basement and see a cellist there, you'd say, oh, that music. Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt your performance. Yeah. Oh, then that music is diegetic. It's within the world of the fiction. If, on the other hand, there's somebody who, you know, leaps out with a switchblade and plunges it into your eye, then you think, oh, that music extra diegetic. What's so interesting about this this, this scene in particular is that, yes, it's a, it's a torture scene, and what ultimately happens is he cuts off the cop's ear, right? But we don't actually see that action take place. The camera pans away from the moment of the severage of the ear and then pans back to it once that act has been completed. So in a sense, too, that, well, that's this cheerful, boppy music still going on, it actually seems, to, for the viewer, for me at least, makes that action even more painful and even worse because you can hear the moans and grunts but you don't actually see it visualized on screen. Is that as good for you as it was for me? Hey, what's going on? You hear that? (laughs) It's the same kind of thing that one sees in a movie like Jaws. Like You hardly ever see the hole of the shark. What you see is the fin of the shark. Mm -hmm. And famously Spielberg talked about how they couldn't get the shark to work for much of the filming of 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 the movie, of Jaws. What they did instead was they could get this fin. And Spielberg understood that the suggestion of the shark, the imagination of of the viewer, is much more powerful than anything that he would be able to show. What happens after he cuts off, uh, after Mr. White cuts off the ear, is he then leaves the warehouse. He goes outside into the sunny street and opens up the trunk of his car. And it's at that moment when you stop hearing the music. It's, it becomes, again, diegetic, right? He's leaving the warehouse and leaving the space. So, of course, we lose the sound of the radio. He, he takes out a, a can of gasoline. 
and he comes back in to the warehouse. And the, the music seems to be even louder than it was before. He begins to pour the gas on the kidnapped police officer who then begins to plead with him, who then begins to beg him, don't burn me, don't do this, and screams and screams. It's very difficult even to listen to. something about the auditory and again the collision of the bright cheerfulness the poppiness of stuck in the middle with you when it's when it collides with that desperation of the of the that scene's also pretty crucial in the film dramaturgically because at that point they're all just criminals you know you're getting to know them all and then over the course of the film you realize even within this group of quote unquote bad guys there are worse guys you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And not so bad guys and ultimately a good guy. And this pivotal scene is the one where you begin to find that out. It's not just, oh, wouldn't it be cool to, to smash these things two up? It's like, wow, this is A, this is not this guy's first time. B, this guy likes to listen to the radio. Like, he likes to listen to super sounds of the 70s yeah. while he tortures not just people, tortures police people. So it, it also serves as this really important moment dramaturgically. Like he uses the music to deepen the character uh, as well, which 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 he does really you know effectively throughout the whole film. Music becomes a character. The Stephen Wright voice becomes you know is is consistent throughout. You know, in the Jaws example, Spielberg gets John Williams to help bail him out to help him yeah. figure out how do I with that music right with the music. How does the music itself be the signal? Uh, but in 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 this Tarantino idiom. In this film, he's using, uh, you know, existing songs from other eras to, you know, there's something from the 70s that he wants to put into this 90s film um, and, and make the backdrop for these, for these hardened criminals to, to kind of humanize them more. One of the things that's kind of getting back to the idea of what happens to songs when they do get put into film is that now that that, film, that song has been put into this Tarantino film, it's very difficult to think about it as something that was a product of you know the pop sounds of the early 1970s. You would then have these associations of, of torture that go along with it. Reservoir Dogs erases the history of Stuck in the Middle with You. It makes us have that association between the film and the song in a way that not quite erases completely, but in a big way erases the previous history of the song. Like 1973, number six on the Billboard chart, it's not that obscure a song, but it takes away that past. And for me, the way that it does that, or the reason that it does that, is because of the trauma of the filmic moment. And if you think of what are the characteristics of trauma, trauma is not just something that happens to you in the present, and it's not just something that happens to you in the past. The true mark of trauma is the way that it lacks any kind of temporal or like violates temporal regularity, right? So when you've had something really traumatic happen to you, you, it's impossible to imagine what the world was like before that happened. Once you've had the awful thing go on, it's hard to remember the world as being a bright and innocent place. And that's the nature of trauma, that it erases the past as well as the future, as well as the present. And in some way, I think our connection with 
this song, Stuck in the Middle with You, has to do with that way in which the which, which has to do with the force of the movie and the trauma that we experience just by watching the scene. Mm. Hard to go back to Steeler's Wheel and Stuck in the Middle with You being that innocuous hit from 1973 once you've seen somebody have their ear cut off and be doused in gasoline while listening to it. We're just getting started. This is Critical Karaoke. We're talking about film and music. Stay with us. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby. thought goes through my mind What a marvelous time you to make up on the screen I am proud that I have you right by my side But I'd be satisfied to lend you to the public to be seen You ought to be in pictures You're wonderful to see You ought to be in pictures Oh, what a hit Welcome back to Critical Karaoke. I'm Ryan Benigali. This episode, we're talking about music and film, songs and cinema. Yeah, you know, guys, I want to actually talk about uh, two songs uh, that were written around the same time, same genre of music, um, but I think are interesting in the way that they're both they're both two songs that uh, are extremely iconic, uh, but are used oftentimes for incredibly different reasons and for different results. But um, so anyway, the first one I want to talk about is uh, I Got You, I Feel Good by James Brown. Wow! I feel good. It is his most popular song. It is his most played song. Uh, it's from 1965, uh, along with uh, songs like Papa's Got a Brand New Bag and um, uh, I Got That Feeling. You know, these are all sort of mid-60s, early mid-60s, James Brown, like, you know, sort of one of his one of his peak eras, you know, where he's making these twelve bar blueses. He's really establishing, you know, his uh, he's establishing the funk, which is which is you know slightly different than the Motown sound or other soul sounds. You know, it's upbeat. It's always on the the emphasis is always on the one. He's got Bootsy Collins, you know, playing the playing the bass. Uh, this is James. This is the this is the beginning of this is the James that we all you know know and love today. You know, this high energy. Um, very, you know, energetic, Mr. Dynamite, James Brown. And so I Got You, I Feel Good, even though it's from the mid-60s, it's been used a ton, even to this day, uh, in a lot of films, uh, mostly in comedies. And so it's in uh, Nutty Professor, Good Morning Vietnam, Home Alone 4, Mr. Jones, It Takes Two, Dr. Doolittle, Boat Trip, The Great Boat Trip, K-9, Garfield the Movie, Exit, I mean, you know, it's an, it's an enormous list. Uh, and typically, 
where this you know where this song shows up it's usually somewhere in the middle of the movie or towards the end of act one uh, and it's there's usually some montage scene where just where it's used quite literally to convey the feeling of of the main character who's finally caught a break in some way right so for example in nutty professor it's the sequence where um, for the first time Sherman clump, uh, who's, you know, this obese professor uh, who's lovable, but he's, you know, very self-conscious about his weight. He, you know, finds the serum. He takes this magic serum that he creates, and he wakes up the next morning, and he's this slim, handsome Eddie Murphy, right? He feels good. He feels good, right? And so the whole montage is, you know, him running around and eating a bunch of food and jumping around and being all energetic and happy, buying spandex, and this song <laughs> plays through it, right? Uh, also, I'm, and I'm almost positive that it's in the film Grumpy Old Men yeah. during the scene where Jack Lemmon finally hooks up with Anna, Anne Margaret. It's yeah. the morning after <laughs> he finally hooks up with Anne Margaret. Yeah, and the experience provokes in him almost that song. I feel yeah. right. So it's always used. It's all, it, it, but it's never. It never opens or finishes a film. Typically, it's always to describe. You know, it's always very close to the character, the main character's point of view, and it's to describe that fleeting moment of of you know the, the I feel good, but it's like it's only for a moment. And so it's almost foreboding in a way because you know it's not kind of la- like, you know, yeah, it's temporal things. Yeah, yeah. Right. The, the, having, having feeling good and having this funky music is a temporal thing. I think that's what makes the song work. I think that's why we like it so much. Like if you don't respond to that song, like if you don't literally feel good when that song's playing, then I'm I'm very concerned about you. Right. And your I mean, that's, that's where it occurs. It occurs sort of like when you we think about where it occurs in movies. It occurs before the change that the final resolution of the movie is going to have to resolve, right? And I think that the people who make films and make commercials and you know directors know this and so they plop it in. They're manipulating us. To really just get you right there. But it's typically like you couldn't really put this in a in a in a hardcore, you know, in a drama or a melodrama. I think because the way it 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 is so extreme in its feel goodness, it is yeah. so extreme. There's nothing in its, ambiguous. It's about almost it. comical how good James feels and how good his band feels. So nice, so nice. I got you. Hey. So you know, I feel good. I got you. Uh, is released in 1965, and a year earlier, 1964, um, there's another song in the R&B uh, idiom uh, called "Change Gonna Come" by the great Sam Cooke. Mm. Now, to the extent that "I Got You, I Feel Good" makes you feel good, and it's used in films to convey that very clear message, uh, "Change Gonna Come" really conveys. This, you know, uh, the very, you know, the very complicated feeling of, you know, African Americans and really young people in general during the civil rights movement, during the time, during the 60s, you know, in this time of great social change and upheaval, civil rights movement, you know, presidents are being assassinated, world leaders are being assassinated, there's change is happening, um, and two very important things happen to inspire Sam Cooke uh, to write this song. You know, so Sam Cooke is known, uh, you know, as being this this great soul troubadour. You know, he sings about love, or he sings about feeling good. You know, it's it's in that in that very fam- in those very familiar, you know, R and B soul themes. Uh, in 1963, he hears Bob Dylan's song "Blowing in the Wind." Before you call him a man. 
this is the beginning of Bob Dylan hitting his stride with writing, you know, songs that really convey the feelings of the era, right? And so Sam Cooke hears this song, and you know, he's really moved by it, and he wants to write something similar. He, yeah, wants he incorporates to it into his repertoire, right? Yeah, he he, 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 he starts singing. Starts singing the Dylan song. How many roads must a man walk down before he's called a man? Tell me. And he's like, how do, I, how do I create something of my own that speaks to this as well? Felt a sense of responsibility. What also happens to Sam Cooke to inspire this song is that him, him and his wife are denied, uh, are turned away at the counter of a motel uh, in Shreveport, Louisiana. They're sent away. And Sam Cooke is, you know, he's Sam Cooke, and he thinks that means something. So he actually tells his wife, you know, his wife is like, they're going to kill you. And he says, no, they're not. I'm Sam Cooke. You know, yeah. um, and sure enough, they get turned away. They go to, you know, another motel. And when they get to this other motel, the police are waiting for them. And, you know, he gets arrested. They both get arrested. Yeah, so it's 1963. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he's turned away. And he, way he describes it later, he gets angry at this. He gets angry at this injustice. And the cops are waiting for him. And he's arrested. Yeah, and, but more, more than, than um, you know, but what, what happens with the song, I think, is, and I think why the song... Um, is so powerful is that it, it somehow conveys multiple emotions simultaneously. The, the lyrics are, you know, a change is going to come, right? Which is, you know, a hopeful sentiment. You know, it starts, the first lyrics of the song was, you know, I was born, you know, by the river, right? So it's, it talks about birth. Later in the song, he says, um, it's been too hard living, but I'm afraid to die, right? So it's really about, you know, birth, life, and death, you know, and you know, the music is really just mournful and really, um, you know, sad. And it's a cathartic record, but it, it's very mournful, very, you know, it's a lament, you know. So it really captures the psychology and the, and the real feelings, I think, of, you know, people like Cook and others in this era. Um, that it is both, you know, it's looking forward, but also looking around. But I'm afraid to die. And Cook was so effective with the song and so moved himself by the song that he stopped performing it. Uh, after it had been recorded and released, and the reason he stopped performing is because it was it was too, you know, he felt he felt like the presence of death was there when he was yeah. singing it. A, a young Bobby Womack, yeah, uh, the, the great singer Bobby Womack, uh, who was who was uh, in Cook's band at the time, said to him that the song was spooky. Yeah. You know, well, uh, Womack said, you know, he asked him before he played it, what does it sound like? And Cook's response was, it sounds like death. Yeah, it sounds like death. And Womack said in response, uh, I don't know if it sounds like death, but it sounds spooky. Yeah. And that's, uh, which is, you know, but then it would continue to haunt him after the, the moment it would continue to haunt him. And he, he, would st- he stopped playing it. Yeah, he, stopped, he didn't like to perform it live. Um, so the song is released in December of 1964, mm-hmm. right? The next year, uh, civil rights leader, uh, black radical... Malcolm X is assassinated. Mm-hmm. So in the Spike Lee biopicture, uh, X, which is about the life of Malcolm X, um, there is this really iconic sequence towards the end 
And it's after, you know, Malcolm has come back from Mecca. Uh, he severed ties with the Nation of Islam mm-hmm. and with Elijah Muhammad. Um, you've seen, you've witnessed Malcolm go through all these transitions and live this life. And he's finally at a place where he's feeling like he has a renewed sense of purpose. He's ready to, you know, collaborate with with other leaders and, you know, with white, he's letting white folks join the organization. Um, and it's at this point that he's now sort of public enemy number one, not just with the United States government, like he feels like the CIA is listening in on him, um, but then also with members of, you know, the Nation of Islam Mm -hmm. at that time. And so he can sense that something's coming. He can sense that, you know, death is close by. And so there's a sequence when he's walking towards the, uh, the, the, this ballroom in Harlem to give a speech. And it's Spike Lee used to have this, he used to employ this technique where he would put actors on uh, dolly tracks and uh, attach the camera uh, to the front of the dolly tracks. And so, you know, the actor would just be floating down the street, right? And so it would just convey this, this sense of disorientation, you know, from the main character. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just looked really cool as well. So anyway, so he's using that in this, in, this, in this sequence with Malcolm. Malcolm just walking. And as he's walking and looking around the streets of Harlem, you hear this Sam Cooke song, right? And so if you, you know, those of us who go see the movie, who were going to see the movie X when it came out, you're aware, okay, you know the history, you know this is the day Malcolm's gonna die, yeah. you know? And so this song is like, you know, it's like a, pr- a prelude to what's coming, you know? And in, in a way it's sort of, Foreshadows it. It foreshadows it. Foreshadows it. Yeah, it a change is going to come for Malcolm, but a change is also going to come for the movement. A change is going to, you know, whatever. Um, so, you know, it's, you know, so of course that sequence ends, uh, the, the song ends, and then he goes to the bar when we get into our sort of final, final moments uh, of the film. Nine years later, uh, a film about uh, Michael Mann's Ali comes out, right? Which is a film about Muhammad Ali. Uh, and, you know, Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X were friends, were contemporaries for a while until Malcolm left uh, the nation. And then Ali, who was just kind of entering the nation at the time, stuck with, you know, the nation Islam and sort of shunned Malcolm X as well. But, you know, Michael Mann's basically working in the same time period. Um, and there's a moment you know, uh, Muhammad Ali, you know, we see that we see the same sequence, uh, you know, Malcolm at the ballroom, he goes up to the podium, he gets shot, right? Then we flash over, we cut over to Muhammad Ali uh, driving in the car, and someone runs up to his window, and he slows down, and the guy yells in Muhammad Ali's car, they shot Malcolm, they shot Malcolm, they shot Malcolm, turns on the radio, right? And so he's listening to the news report, and then... They fade in very low at first. They fade in underneath, almost like it's, you know, two radio stations battling. Uh, they bring in Change Gonna Come. walked up to the speaker's platform at the time And so it's, it's almost like what was happening on, you know, with Michael Mann's film. It's almost like... He's showing what was on the other end of Spike Lee's film. It seems to be in direct conversation, uh, you know, with, with sort of the beginning part being uh, Malcolm, uh, Malcolm X hearing the song on his way to die, dying, and then Ali hearing the song on the other end after the death. Uh, the only difference is that, in, well, not the only difference, but a significant difference, though, is that it's, it's actually not the Sam Cooke recording that uh, Muhammad Ali is listening to, or that that Michael Mann uses in the Ali film. It's a it's a cover by Al Green, 
uh, feature in the MGs. But both Spike Lee and Michael Mann, you know, it's funny, they resonate with it too. Like they know that song sounds like death. Mm-hmm. Like there's something about that. There's something about just mournfulness that is evoked in that record. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted to ask the musicologist, um, what is there something going on musically in that song that evokes that feeling? What's amazing about this recording, in addition to Sam Cooke's vocal, is there's this this really subtle French horn line. A long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh yes, it will. It's been too- the French horn is a sound that's been used for centuries in music, particularly in classical music, to draw out this sense of mournfulness, of sadness. And there's the idea that there's a single horn that's playing it. It's it's an individual. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that kind of ties back to this idea of change is going to come, that yes, we can all as individuals contribute to this process and make something happen. Um, But also at the same time, we all feel very isolated and individual, and that that kind of sense of hopelessness connects to that general mournfulness and and provides us with that sense of of death or longing and melancholy. I've actually got a a tune that I want a critical karaoke that's from a a song or composition for film that uses the French horn. But first, I think we should take a quick break. I guess so. I guess if you, I guess if we have to. All right, this is Critical Karaoke. We're talking about songs in film. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Back to Critical Karaoke. Uh, today we're talking about songs and film. And uh, Ryan, you were just ruminating about the French horn. Yeah, the and French horn. Yeah, and it's many uses. The French horn can be used for all sorts of things, but I'm thinking specifically about the use of French horn in a particular film or in a kind of a genre of film. Um, let's just take a quick listen.
This is a, a composition by Sergei Rachmaninoff. This is uh, an excerpt from the first movement of his second piano concerto, this piano concerto in C minor. This piano concerto itself, the second piano concerto, is one that gets used quite a bit in film. The film that comes to mind is a, a film called Brief Encounter from 1946. And this film is, um, as the title suggests, is, is, is a film about an affair. It's a film about mm -hmm. a woman who is, uh, she's bored with her life, she's a housewife, and her husband works all the time, and they've, they've reached this point in their marriage where they're really not that interested in each other. So she gets on the train, and she goes off on one of her daily you know, shopping adventures, and, and meets, encounters a man in, in a coffee shop at a train station. And the whole film unfolds with this Rachmaninoff as the soundtrack. It's the sound of desperation and despair, but it's also the sound of excitement, of a romance. Uh, Rachmaninoff's compositions, he's someone working in the late 19th century, early 20th century, but very much in the mode of, of romanticism. Um, his works are very large, very lush. This piano concerto especially is very grandiose in the way that it unfolds. There's a lot of dynamicism and a lot of contrast and a lot of kind of sonic characters that emerge over the course of this piano concerto. And so what, what film does and really what Brief Encounter does with this with this particular tune is that it, it, it attaches those moods, those emotions that go in with a relationship that may not be as strong as it once was, with the drifting heart, with the reunion of two couples, the coming together of, of people, that, that the music becomes the soundtrack for that. I'm a happily married woman. Or rather, I was until a few weeks ago. It's also a, uh, a movie that's about an unconsummated romance between two married people, two people who clearly are attracted to each other but can never get together because of their circumstances. And so there's a Rachmaninoff, uh, the music, the soundtrack, this song, what it gives the, the film is this feeling of, um, of, of anticipation, a feeling of, of, of something building, and also of unconsummation. And I mean, the, the, the script is from Noel Coward. It exists as a work of literature, and it, it's, it's suffused through with, for example, the romantic poetry of John Keats, which figures very prominently in that film. You're a poetry addict. See if you can help me over this. It's Keats. When I behold upon the night-starred face huge cloudy symbols of a high something in seven letters. Romance, I think. I'm almost sure it is. Huge cloudy symbols of a high romance. It'll be in the Oxford Book of English first. No, that's right, I'm sure, because it fits in with Delirium and Lucastown. So films like Brief Encounter that take, uh, to take Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto as another film from 1946 called The Seventh Veil that uses it in kind of a similar way, where we establish a sense of romance, but also an unrequited love or relationship. And let's fast forward now a, a decade to 1955. Mm -hmm. And 1955, and the film that I want to really talk about and focus in on with the use of Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto is The Seven-Year Itch. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's the funniest comedy since laughter began. Of a wife who spent the summer away. And a husband who stayed home to play and play and play. Now, Seven-Year Itch, if you know anything about The Seven-Year Itch, um, it's, it's a Marilyn Monroe film, and this is the film that has the famous Marilyn Monroe standing over the subway grate where her dress flies up scene. Now, the way that this film uses the Rachmaninoff second piano concerto is really interesting because it relies on these conventions set in place by Brief Encounter. Mm -hmm. 
so the brief plot of, of Seven Year Itch is, again, this idea of, of romance and relationships kind of drifting apart, right? The idea of the seven year itch has to do with you've been married to this person for a long time and now you're kind of looking for something else to keep, keep things going. Yeah, it has to do with the, the idea that you've been married to somebody for seven years. Right. And every seven years you get itchy. So what it pulls on is the association of the Rachmaninoff piece with brief encounter, with itchy people who were itchy like 20 years ago. And it, it uses that connection between the romanticism the high artistry of Rachmaninoff, and the idea that in some way uh, you're constrained as a human by being in the relationship that you're in. Right, exactly. And, the, and the, what, what they do in Seven Year Itch is that they're actually playing that whole idea, that whole sentiment, they play it for a laugh. Yeah. Right. This is a comedy, and what they do is the the kind of the central character here is a, a man named Richard Sherman. He's right. your kind of typical 1950s everyman. He's got a very active imagination, so he's always talking to himself and envisioning what his life would be like and what's happening in his world. At the outset of the film, uh, Mr. Sherman's wife and child go away from New York City for the summer. It's just too hot in the city in the summer, and so they go away. And he's left alone at work and spending evenings by himself in their, their house. And... Um, their upstairs neighbor goes away and they have a house guest and the house guest is the girl upstairs so the girl upstairs actually doesn't have a name but it's played by marilyn monroe with marilyn monroe soaring to new heights as the screen's most lovable laugh getter through a series of happenstances uh, they decide that they the two should uh the mr sherman and the girl upstairs should get together for a drink one evening and in an attempt to um prepare the atmosphere for for her arrival uh mr sherman puts on some music and he, he goes through a, uh, through a list of possibilities. He picks um, Rachmaninoff. And he says, yeah, Rachmaninoff, that's it. Like, you know, gangbusters. We're going to go in and this is going to be the thing that gets her to fall in love with me and, and my life is going to be, uh, I've scratched that seven-year itch. And so he, this moves us into this whole dream sequence where he envisions himself in this red velvet smoking jacket playing the Rachmaninoff second piano concerto and the girl upstairs sits down to him next to the piano and she's completely overwhelmed by emotion by listening to this piece and she says, don't stop, don't stop, don't ever stop and then he stops. He has this kind of look of embarrassment like he's prematurely finished in a sense and, and she says, well, why did you stop? And he leans over and he says, because now I'm going to take you in my arms and kiss you very quickly and very hard. And this whole thing unfolds and the camera pans back and we see the real Mr. Sherman watching the scene, just kind of almost licking his lips, enjoying this imaginary daydream. Meanwhile, Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto has been playing. And I think what's really interesting about the scene is it's, it's very funny, but it's also drawing so much on the musical conventions of Brief Encounter. As audiences, why this works and why this becomes a funny sequence is because we understand the romanticism of this piece, even if we don't know the complete story of Brief Encounter and the nuances of the uh, unrequited love affair, we get this moment where we see it kind of played out before us and it's humorous, but we still have this very romantic soundtrack. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's under the presumption that if he can, and I think that this is a presumption that that many of us have labored under at one time or another in our life. The, the idea that if you can prove yourself to be a great artist, if you can prove yourself to be a deep intellectual in some kind of, you know, meaningful, soulful way, women will fall in love with you. That doesn't and happen for it you, doesn't have, and Well, it, it doesn't always uh, pr prove to be the case. And one of the things that the seven-year itch reminds us of is of that. She, he believes that the Rachmaninoff, this is the connection with the Rachmaninoff, that his love of Rachmaninoff will translate into him uh, being able to hook up as the to use a contemporary uh, mm -hmm. term for it, uh, be able to hook up with Marilyn Monroe because of that 
that artistic, that because of that aesthetic sensibility. In fact, mm. Marilyn Monroe, who, by the way, in the movie prefers chopsticks. Huh. Yep. She prefers, she is she more interested in air conditioning than anything else. Right. She's there for, not for the music, she's there for the air conditioning. For the air conditioning. Everything's fine. A married man, air conditioning, champagne and potato chips. It's just a wonderful party. And, and, when, and, when, he, and when, when Sherman puts on the Rachmaninoff for her, once she arrives to the apartment, her reaction to it is, is completely blank. She yeah. has no reaction to it. She's not seduced by it at all. This is what they call classical music, isn't it? Yes. I could tell because there's no vocal. And, and as Stephen pointed out, she ends up going over to the piano and playing chopsticks. Is it a moment that makes us fall out of love with Marilyn Monroe? I mean, is that what the movie tries to do? The movie tries to say, so she's beautiful, so she's Marilyn Monroe, but she prefers chopsticks. And it's like that Ferlinghetti poem, man, it was like this when two papish cats walk in and one of them is doing an Aztec two-step and this dame comes up to me and says, man, we could really exist. Only the next day she has bad teeth and really hates poetry. And so it brings out mm-hmm. in him, in the guy with the itch, the, uh, the fact that he's, there's something more to him than just being, you know, just desiring some kind of shallow uh, assignation with Marilyn Monroe. I, I, I think ultimately, though, we don't, we don't want him to scratch the seven-year itch. No. Because we don't, yeah. So, so um, and, and they set it up, they set it up for things not to go well. Anytime right. you see the fantasy version of something before the real thing happens, you know it's it's probably not going to go down that way. So yeah, in a way it's it's we don't dislike uh Marilyn Monroe in that moment. Um right, you know, I think not, I think her. I think we're savoring. I think we see I think we find the whole thing satisfying because it confirms what we already know, which is which is that, you know, there's fantasy and there's reality and we need fantasy, but we live in the reality. And so uh you know, if it turns out that it went exactly how he was imagining it was going to, that that would just be disorienting Absolutely. and strange. Well, I, I, I mean, it's hard to imagine the comic resolution of the seven-year itch being that they hook up, have this amazing, you know, really historic uh, physical encounter, and then he goes back uh, to being married for another seven years uh, in this <laughs> seven-year, fourteen-year itch, right. this bleakly quotidian yes. way. You know, seven-year itch part two. You yeah. can see the way in which it borders, as do a lot of Noel Coward comedies, though, mm. on the edge of being a sort of bleak Chekhovian insight into the hopelessness of everyday life. Yeah. So, so, but if he had hooked up with Marilyn Monroe, sands the fantasy. The sequence after he woke up the next morning would have been "I Feel Good" by James Brown. And then to be followed by to be followed by change gonna come. Right. Uh, yeah. That's right. <laughs> when his after wife, his wife comes back, yeah, yeah, his wife comes back, a change gonna come. A change gonna come. 
Critical Karaoke is recorded at the Tim Gill Center for Public Media in association with Rocky Mountain PBS. And made possible by the generous support of the B. Vradenberg Foundation, the Joseph Henry Edmondson Foundation, and Colorado College. Our producer is Craig Richardson. Our web designer is Savannah Worth. And if you just can't get enough Critical Karaoke, you can sign up for our daily podcasts on iTunes or visit us on the web at criticalkaraoke.com. Until next time, remember, keep your karaoke critical.